If you're joining us, we are right in the middle of chapter 13. And an illustration that is classic to prophecy is the illustration of the mountain range. And I mentioned it last week, and I'll start off with it again this week. I think it's helpful for us to have in mind. So you jump in the car, and you're driving west. You're heading across the Midwestern states, and you're approaching the Rocky Mountains. And as you get closer, the mountain peaks start to rise up from the plains and almost touch the sky. And there's this line on the horizon with these jagged peaks up and down. And from a distance, it looks like a flat picture. It looks as though it's very just one or two dimensional in nature, like a singular wall that juts up from the plains. However, if you were at that same point, just vertical in the air in a jet about 30,000 feet, you would realize a different perspective, that that picture in front of you of the Rocky Mountains actually has depth to it. There are mountains in the foreground, and then there are mountains in the background there. Well, when we come to Mark 13, prophecy is much like that view of the mountains from a ground level. We don't have the advantage all the time of being up in the air. There are prophecies that are made, prophecies that appear to be in the foreground, and prophecies that you wonder, how much further back is that mountain peak of a prophecy, or is it side by side with the first one? When you approach Mark 13, or chapters in the Old Testament, and I think your mind can race through some of the passages in Isaiah, or the passages that talk about the coming day of the Lord, there are aspects in which you read that and you say, that seemed to have an immediate fulfillment, and yet it appears as though there is a fuller fulfillment yet to come. Near mountains and far mountains, right there side by side in the same passage. So one scholar, Cranfield, his name is, not the PBS series, if any of you were into that, that was on the BBC series. Cranfield is a scholar on the book of Mark, and he writes this. He says this, the divine judgments in history are, so to speak, rehearsals of the last judgment and the successive incarnations of Antichrist are foreshadowings of the last supreme concentration of the rebelliousness of the devil before the end. So for us, the fulfillment of these verses is past, present, and future, and are rightly included under the heading signs of the age or characteristics of the last times. The key to their understanding is the recognition that there is here a double reference. The impending judgment on Jerusalem and the events connected with it are for Jesus, as it were, and notice this, a transparent object in the foreground through which he foresees the last events before the end, which indeed they foreshadow. And again, as we went through the book of Lamentations, we saw this in front of us where Jerusalem was sacked and it was devastating. 
and you look at the picture of Jerusalem being sacked and devastating through the eyes of Jeremiah, and it's as though it's a transparency, but you see something on that transparency, and yet you look towards the past and you can see this is a picture of God's eternal judgment that's going to come on those who rebel against him. You can read the phrases, the day of the Lord in the prophets, Isaiah or Amos. And you see God's judgment coming to the nations. And it's like a transparency that you see happening right here and now. And yet, that language you say sounds very familiar to events that are yet to come. Now, the danger that we have, and I think Cranfield is right. The danger that we have when we come to prophecy is we want to see it all here or all there. And that's when the charts and graphs and arrows come out. And we miss this very important point that prophecy is not necessarily first and foremost about the timelines. It's about drawing out an emotion of the bigness and glory of God and we take him seriously. It's supposed to be provocative in nature. We're supposed to stand there and say, whoa, God is serious about his honor and about his glory. Don't mess with him, whether it's in 586 BC, whether it's in 70 AD, or whether it's in the day to come. So let me pastorally come around you for just a moment and say that we need to practice something here. Um, two things to avoid, one attitude to embrace. Two responses that we want to avoid when it comes to passages on prophecy. Number one is the attitude of tyranny. By that I mean there can be this rabid approach in this tyrannical kind of way that says you have to see it my way and if you don't, I'm cutting away from you. Or if you don't, I'm going to twist your arm until you see it my way. Tyranny. We're not tyrannical when it comes to end times or the doctrine of eschatology. That's end times. Second, though, is the opposite. On one hand, there's tyranny. On the other end, there's anarchy. And anarchy says, well, we just don't even have to talk about the end times. There's no structure. We're just going to ignore it altogether. And so there's no rules or no boundaries and nobody wants to mention anything about it. Eh, that's wrong as well. So how should we conduct ourselves? Tyranny? No. Anarchy? No. Third, better approach, humility. And this is an approach where you study the Bible because the word of God has been given to us and we're commanded to be like Bereans where we go and study the word and God uses his word to sanctify us, and we should form conclusions. But when you have the humility about your, confu or about your conclusion concerning the end times, you, you go forward in humility and you say, this is where I just think God has landed in terms of his plan for the end, and this is how I see it. But as we see the disciples... There was confusion about when the kingdom of God was going to be ushered in. There was confusion when Jesus came about who he was and whom the Messiah was. And yet the Old Testament, boom, all these arrows just blinking forward saying, that's him. But there was much confusion there. And so we do well 
to proceed in a chapter like this, knowing that there are different conclusions all around this auditorium. Some of your teachers in Sunday school class are going to have a different conclusion than me, and some of them will have a same conclusion. And yet, I hope that you can see in our pastoral leadership that we can say, you love the word of God, we're going to be humble about this and not cause it to be div divisive. So many of you remember Luke Bilesma. I remember what he said at his ordination. He said, when it comes to end times, all the boats have holes in them. You're going to have to pick one that you think can float the best. And I think that describes eschatology. Everybody can poke holes in each other's systems if you're honest about it. Or maybe you haven't studied your system enough to see where the holes are. Okay, so you're joining us. We're in the Gospel of Mark. Mark has been explaining who the Messiah is. That's Jesus himself. In chapters 11 and 12, Jesus has made his way from north to south. He's arrived in, the, uh, in Jerusalem and he heads to the temple and he causes waves. He cleanses the temple. He starts speaking to the crowds. The religious leaders see that he is on their home turf and their goal is to completely discredit him, get him out of here. And so they throw their best at him by uh, trying to make public arguments have him look foolish. And what Jesus does, full of wisdom, he turns the tables, answers all of their questions, and they're the ones that look the fool. And so at the end of this particular day, could be around Tuesday in the Passion Week, Jesus has come and he has established himself in the temple. And I think that what Mark is doing is he's pointing us to here is true religion. True religion is not in the building there. True religion is found in Jesus himself. All the, the religious leaders thought religion was centered around this building where God was supposed to dwell, and here is God the Son standing right in front of him. Don't miss him. And so Jesus is walking out of the temple complex. He's with his disciples. And this is the beginning of chapter 13 from last week. The disciples are admiring all of the buildings. They're saying, wow, what wonderful monuments and buildings there are. And Jesus turns to them and says, hey, there's coming a day soon when all of these buildings will be torn down. There won't be one stone standing upon another. This epitome of religion is going to fall apart, but Jesus will remain. He's the Messiah. He's where the focus is to be. And so we saw that the first half of Mark chapter 13 is largely emphasizing the event that took place in AD 70 where Titus came and he sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. It's gone. It's done. So now Jesus continues through that and remember the transparency with the object or the hard object in the background. Remember the mountain in the foreground and the mountain in the background you start moving into passages now where you see Jesus talking and he moves seamlessly through these events. And for us, there's a lot of debate. Is he talking about the AD 70 fulfillment or is he talking about the future fulfillment? Or as I think, there's a lot that takes place in this near fulfillment that is going to happen fully in the later one. All right, so let's sort of unpack that as we move into now our passage this morning. So first off, point number one is Jesus's return. And we see this in verse 24 through 
uh, 27. Now, there's some things that we can observe about Jesus' return. In verse 24, he says, but in those days and after that tribulation, and then he talks about the Son of Man coming. Okay, so just note this and let's walk through this with humility. Uh, What is the tribulation that Jesus is talking about here? Well, he had just referenced tribulation back up in verse 19. And he says, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Okay, so he's talking about a tribulation now in verse 24. And he says, this is going to be epic. Uh, Something like this has never happened and there will be nothing greater than what takes place here. So we could say that this tribulation is characterized by severity. It will be more severe than any kind of tribulation that had ever happened or will ever happen. And yet, the severity of this tribulation is also characterized by God's sovereignty. And where do you see that? You see it up in verse 20. That if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So if the Lord doesn't cut it short, everybody's going to be destroyed. So he shortens the time of tribulation for the sake of the elect. Which just draws us back to, okay, here's God. And he's moving through time and history. He's bringing time and history along for his honor and glory. And he brings people into steadfast love, relationship with him. And he's going to preserve the elect. There won't be a world annihilation that takes place. Even though there's the potential for it, with all the nuclear bombs stored all over the world, God is going to preserve the elect all the way through. And you see glimpses of this throughout the scriptures. Where severity came upon the world, but God preserved his people. Where do you see it? Beginning chapters of the Bible, there's Genesis where God brings his judgment, but he preserves Noah and his family. You see it in Israel, how God was pouring out his judgment, but he kept his people, Israel, through the plagues. You see them moving the nation out and being a mighty warrior and keeping his people while he pours out judgment on the surrounding Canaanite nations. You even see it in the prophets, where the prophets are God's men sharing his message, and he's pouring out judgment, and he keeps men like Elijah and keeps men like Jeremiah. I think about Daniel. He brought Daniel and his three friends out of the Jerusalem judgment. Now they're in Babylon in exile. And God is just keeping and protecting them from all sorts of severe tribulations that can happen. So here's here's the confidence that we have that God protects his people. So when Jesus returns, you can see that he comes after a time of severe tribulation that is taking place under the sovereignty of God. Now, we also see God's judgment here. So look at verse 24. In those days after that tribulation, now notice the language. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. All right, so the disciples are right there listening to Jesus' words. 
is this foreign language to the Jewish mind? The answer is no. Uh, this is not the first time they have heard this. I want you to take your Bibles. I didn't put it up on the screen because I want you to use your Bibles for this. Turn to Isaiah for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 13. Because this is where we've seen this language before. Isaiah chapter 13. And you notice where this chapter is going. You look at verse 1. And this is oracles of judgment. Particularly verse 1. It's the oracle concerning Babylon. Which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Okay, so the rest of this chapter is talking about God's judgment that is going to come against Babylon. Now look at verse 9, now that you know whom he's talking to. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. And what is coming on this day of the Lord? Well, it'll be cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation. And notice, to destroy its sinners from it. Now, verse 10, notice the language here. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And he continues on and he says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. So this language here that you read in Isaiah chapter 13, you ought to be sitting there as a recipient and say, Whoa, God is serious about sin. There is judgment that is coming. I don't want to trifle with God at all. Now, here is the question that is going to be asked in every end times class at this point. The question is, did the celestial signs that God was speaking of in Isaiah 13 happen when God brought his judgment against Babylon. And as far as we know, those celestial signs did not happen. So, what's the purpose of them? The purpose is to say that God is serious about sin and judgment against sin. And now let me give you a comparison and hang with me for just a moment because I'm not saying that that needs to be your view of it. Some would say this. Language like what you read in Isaiah 13, highly colorful, vibrant, is like a coach who says to his players, on Friday night, you're going to head out on the field and you're going to play with fire in your bones. You have got to be a beast on that field. And if you don't, when you come to practice on Monday, I'm going to put you through such a practice that you won't see the light of day. You'll wish you were never alive. Now, did they go out and play with actual flames of fire in their bones? Did they turn into literal beasts? And if they didn't on Monday, 
will the sun still shine? And the answer is, no, no, yes. <laughs> but what was the purpose of that language? The purpose was, hey, I need to get your attention. You need to know that you're not going to trifle with what I've been teaching you about. You need to go out there and perform and be alert and be awake to what's going on. So here's the tension that takes place when you come to Mark 13. If Mark 13 is language that is literal, then it can only be about what happens in the future. And if it's figurative, it's meant to be something that God can use along the way to grab our attention, where he could be speaking about events happening in AD 70, but also forecasting that as a picture of what's going to happen in the end. I mean, name drop, because you are a little familiar with this. If you're listening to Moody Radio, at 11 o'clock, Grace to You comes on. And John MacArthur is going to get to this passage in Mark 13, and he is going to say that in the end, the stars are going to be falling, the sun is not going to shine, and the moon won't shed its light. It will literally happen. And you're listening to that, and you're like, John MacArthur believes the word of God, and he's done so much for the church, and we say yes. And then you keep tuning into Moody Radio, because at 11.13, there's the famous Scottish preacher, and you like him because of his accent, and it's Alistair Begg. And he gets on the radio, and he starts preaching through Mark 13, and he gets to this chapter, and he says, or this part, and he says, now let me just tell you folks that this is not supposed to be something where you're looking for stars falling from the sky, anticipating this Armageddon approach and reading left behind for entertainment. So here you have two rock-solid, biblically saturated, they'll die for the word of God, but having different conclusions about what this passage means. And then they can go to each other's conferences and preach the word of God on the same stage and be humble. Now, why do I say that? I say that because I want our church to be able to do that. I know that there are many Reformed Baptists in this room who are going to be more like Alistair Begg, and I know that there are many dispensational Baptists that are going to be more like John MacArthur. And you have to proceed forward with a spiritual maturity that says this, I know Jesus is coming back, but I'm not going to hold this with pomp and arrogance or divisiveness. What we hold to is Jesus coming back and we're arguing over the scripture in good, healthy ways, but not arguing over it in such a way that causes us to be divided. So here's the biggest point, though. This language in Mark 13 is showing us that God's justice will come. And when it comes, it's going to shake everybody. It will shake the world. And whether you take it to be metaphorical, colorful language, or whether you take it to be stars falling out of the sky and ripping through the solar system, either way, you have to be able to say, I believe that Jesus is coming back, and it's okay that we might have differing views. We're going to hold to the authority of Scripture, even though we have different conclusions. Now, we continue with Jesus' return. We're talking about God's glory. We see this. So, you know, we've got tribulation. 
We've got God's judgment. And now we've got God's glory. Look at verse 26. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Again, this is language. We do well to saturate ourselves in the Old Testament. Language from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here you see the son of man language that Jesus is talking about, and he's saying, He's going to come, and he's going to come on the clouds. And in that moment, the Father is going to give him this dominion over all peoples and over all nations and over all languages. And it's describing Jesus here. He's going to come back with power and glory. Fourth, you see God's gathering. Verse 27 says this, And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. This is the same language, parallel passage in Matthew 24, where it says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels. And notice what happens with that. There's a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. I think this is the same language that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4. Remember the trumpet. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet. There's the trumpet that you read about in Matthew earlier. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So here's this recap. There's going to be tribulation. God is going to take it very seriously. There's judgment. The Son of Man is going to return and all saints will be gathered together to meet with him. So some of you are asking, just out of curiosity, Nate, are you landing somewhere sort of theologically in a place that I might not land? Probably. Let me say it this way. I feel like I'm in a helicopter. And I'm humbly just landing my helicopter at a point where, that says the rapture or the gathering or the catching up of believers happens after a time of tribulation, not before. And God's going to keep his elect from being snuffed out. So that's, I, I just come through that and I think, that's how I see the text reading. And some of you might say, no, you got to go here and you got to go there. Keep going. Let's keep going with it and study the scriptures out. And then humbly land that helicopter or maybe just hover above the landing spot so that if you have to move real quickly, you can. <laughs> Some are going to ask, Nate, what about Revelation 3.10? Did I put that one up there? Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, and here's the, the pre-trib view, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And that's a good verse. Like if you go there, Revelation 3.10, and if you think keeping from the hour of trial means 
we're going to be caught up and prevented from the hour of trial. I, hey, I, it's a good view. I can see that. I just think there's a difference between keeping and catching up. So just have to come down gently at some place. Now, what's just happened in our thinking? We've just lost sight of what's most important. So now we're thinking about timing, and you can see how these sorts of things start to grate against people, but what's Jesus telling his disciples right there? He's telling his disciples, I'm coming back. Don't lose sight of that. I'm coming back. The Son of Man is going to come with power and glory. Keep your eyes there. When? Nobody knows. In fact, you move down to verse 27, and we see not even the Son knows. I mean, grapple with that. Here's the Son of God, deity, divine, omniscient. And yet, either in his humanity or he willfully chooses not to know when he returns. And so, I'm not going to just drive a flag down and say everybody has to agree to that about the timing. We're going to say, here's our flag. Jesus is coming back. All right, so 28 to 31, second point of the sermon. We're going to move much more quickly now. Jesus's word, Jesus's word. Verse 28. Hey, Mark, Baker, you're making me nervous that you're leaving after I made my point here. <laughs> okay. Okay, recess duty. He's out of here. <laughs> People are leaving the room. Oh, no. You too, Sandy? Oh, no. All right, so Jesus's word. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, so there's the lesson. So also, when you see these things taking place, and he's talking about the things that he's been mentioning throughout the chapter, there's a lot of debate. Is he talking about the things that he mentioned earlier in the chapter that had clear fulfillment or clear reference to AD 70? Or is he talking about the things that he just mentioned? There's some complications here. I'm going to try to move quickly. He says that you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, so just real briefly, the important part of this section here is verse 31. What does Jesus want his people to know? There are things that seem stable. Heaven and earth. And even those stable things are going to pass away. That's how life is. But God's word is completely stable. And his word will not pass away. So we come to Jesus' words and we ask ourselves, what am I finding stability in? We're saying, we have to find our stability in the word. We have to be word-stable people. Not news-stable people. Not heaven that passes away. Not earth that passes away. We have to be word-stable people. So the word ought to characterize our lives. The word ought to characterize our hearts. We'll come back to that just in a moment. There's challenges in this section. Doctrinal challenges about eschatology. The question is, who is the he that's standing at the gates? Some of your translations translated it as, it is near. Meaning the kingdom of God is near. 
Some of yours has a translation with a capital H-E referring to Jesus is near. And some of your translations have a little h, little e, meaning we don't know how to interpret it. So it could be, could be Titus at the gates. It could be a reference to Jesus. Who knows? And then to complicate it even more, you move down to verse 30 and Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And it seems as though he's saying, this generation that I'm talking to. And others say, no, it's the generation of the last days when Jesus returns. It's all going to happen in one generation, one span. Others say, no, this is a generation of people that spans from the time that Jesus was talking all the way to the time that Jesus returns. And it's more like a group of people, the Christians. Christians will never pass away. Well, I think he's referencing, I think he's coming back and saying, okay, I've got the transparency. I've got the, the background here. I'm talking about you disciples. All these things are going to happen in your lifetime about the AD 70, not the future return. That's just my humble opinion there. And there's so much disagreement about it. But the one thing you have to come down on is his statement in verse 31. And that is, what is stable in our lives is God's word. This will happen. Jesus will return. And so God's word is fixed, folks. God's word is permanent. What he says will last. It's true. His word is our instruction for life. And so even like right now, you have to be asking yourself, what is it that I have been leaning into for stability in life? What is it that I'm leaning in and hoping it just stays stable and secure in life? And what we have to come back to is say, okay, there are so many temptations to find stability in our work and in our relationships and in so many other things. But I have to come back and say, okay, the word of God points me to God himself. God is stable. And we just find our stability in all of life in him. Things coming, things going, up, down. God is rock solid. His word is stable. All right, let's move on to point number three. Jesus' return, preceding that, um, we're talking, or Jesus' word is what we just covered. And now the response in verses 32 to 37. Stay awake. I see a lot from up here. <laughs> and I can tell when the temperature is too warm in here for some of you and your heads start to nod. I can tell if you were watching a college football game recently too late at night. Our dear friend who's no longer here, Eugene, he used to have 10 minutes of being awake and then about 20 minutes of rest. And this would be a good point for him, stay awake. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus wants us to know in this section that no one can predict the timing of his return. So the next time Harold Camping or the Mayan calendar predicts the end of the world, just know that Jesus is not coming back on that day. It won't happen. No one knows when Jesus will return. And the question is, why does God want the timing of Jesus' return to be wrapped up in mystery? Why does he want that to be unknown to us? Well, 
he says it's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work. In other words, they're supposed to be working. And he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. And the anticipation is, I want you to be busy doing the work while I'm gone. And if I tell you when I'm going to come back, you might take a long vacation from your work and not be ready for when I return. Or not be carrying out what you should be. So this is an incentive. I could return any time. I might be there next week. But it might take me a millennium to return. And as you move through this, Jesus uses the word awake or awakeness four times. And so the idea here is that we ought to have our attention or our alertness bent towards his return. You say, this is the big idea that you, I want you to walk away with, that we need to be awake to the reality that Jesus could return anytime. We need to be awake to the reality that Jesus could return at any time. But there's a question that we need to examine for a little bit here. What are we alert to? What awakens your attention? What awakens your affections? What is it that sort of grabs you and you say, man, I want, like, this is at the top of my list. It's where my mind goes. This is what I'm awake to. My eyes perk up. My, my attention is there. We can certainly be awake to ourselves. We know what we want. We know how we want things done. We can be awake to our aspirations. From a young age, we know that we want to be front-end loader drivers and excavator drivers. We're awake to that Prince Charming idea that somebody might come along. This has got to be in my life. We soon begin to be awake to our looks and how people perceive us, and that becomes important. We're awake to the ideal American story of success. We're also awake to other things. We're very alert and awake oftentimes to our incompetencies. Our mind goes there, our insecurities, our failures. It grabs our attention, and it could be at the top of our list. We're awake and alert to people around us. And some of those things aren't bad to be aware of. But Jesus is drawing us out and saying, I want you to go through life now. I want you to go through your relationships now. I want you to go through the work that I've called you to. And I want you to be alert to this. I'm coming back. Don't get so set up in the world that you lose sight that I'm coming back. I'm going to show up like the owner of the house at any time. And I, I want you to have this encouragement that I'm coming back. I haven't abandoned you. And I say it that way because so many times, doesn't the return of Jesus have an aura or a presentation that is mingled with fear? and rebuke, and you're not cutting it. Jesus, I think, is telling his disciples, man, you're going to go through some hard times, but I want you to live with the hope every day, to be motivated every day that I'm coming back. You have to be awake to that. And if you're a non-Christian here, 
Let me invite you to this reality that Jesus is coming back for those whom have trusted in him. You must trust in Jesus as your savior. He would come back for you and save you from the judgment, the stars falling from the sky, the judgment of God day. It affects the way we live. If I'm going to the grocery store, my mindset is different when I approach the cash register and that person is working at half speed. Beep, beep, beep. And in my mind, I'm thinking, come on, I want to get going here. Can't you speed it up? You're never going to get to the returns desk if you act like this at the cashier register. Don't you have a promotion that you want? And instead, I could be thinking, whoa, Jesus could come back. Does this person, are they awake and alert to the gospel? This soul that God has put in my life, this uncle, this in-law that is in my life, are they just an inconvenience or God's called me to work here? Am I interacting with my relationships as though Jesus could come back? And he's, that's my post. I'm going to school. I'm going to work realizing that life is not a mundane task. Like Jesus could come back right now. The things that I'm listening to, the stories that I'm clicking on the news, the pursuits that I'm making, is Jesus going to come back and say, yes, you've been about my work. Good job. Good job. Be faithful. Be alert to that. All kinds of turmoil happening in the world. Fox, CNN, they're going to tell you how bad the Democrats are, how bad the Republicans are, and many days they are, all of them. And they want you to believe that a political messiah can come along, and if you just swing with that political messiah, you'll be happy and life will move forward and you can fulfill your dreams. Nope. In this world, there's going to be trials. There's going to be tribulations, but a day is coming when the Son of Man will come to earth and the nations from Ukraine to Iran to North Korea to the United States will be his. They will be his to rule, his dominion in a very real way, and he will lead us into peace forever and ever. It will be a day of rest it will be a day of joy for all of the elect. And so we go into our week saying, man, God's word is stable. He's coming back. I have an opportunity to be joyful in light of where I am. Stay awake to the return of Jesus. Let's pray.